seated. You may be seated here. Thank you for that uh, music leading us to the throne of grace and worship. We're so glad to be together today uh, in person or online. Uh, I'm, it's hard for me to say online. It's not my jam. I don't, the online part of it is not, it's not the gathered out church, but I recognize because of the COVID-19 crisis and those that have compromised immune systems and health issues that some folks are just not comfortable being together yet and are trying to watch for the governor's guidance prior to coming back together. And so we want to appreciate that. We want to honor the governing authorities with that. We want to be patient with love of one another because there's varying conscience calibrations going on with this issue. Uh, and we, we want to be sensitive to that and not assume that we have the corner on the market of all conscience matters always and forever. I think it's very important. I think it's very important that we don't overlook the obvious when we gather together either. That's the reason I even bring it up is because there is something that feels a little bit different about our gatherings. And it's because 2020 has been largely marked by the COVID-19 crisis. And if we are going to find what God designs to unite us, we'll have to dig down deep lest we be divided by something that is not Christ. We should be united in Christ. We should be united in Christ. We should be united not on whoever baptized us, as we're going to see in our text today. We should be united in Christ. We should not be united based on exact same conscience calibrations in every single ethical issue. We should be united in Christ. We follow Christ, and we find unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. And it is my prayer today that we discover that as we consider what it is that we are to be doing together. If you would want to summarize today's sermon from 1 Corinthians, as we're going to do in a recap of Corinthians this summer, if you would want to summarize it, three words would do it. Covenant, baptism, supper. Covenant, baptism, supper. And I'm not talking about having supper tonight. I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. So if you want to write that down, you can follow the sermon pretty easily by those three contours. Covenant, baptism, and supper. I'll start with the first one in a moment, but first I want to read our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, no divisions, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." We're also going to read later in the sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. And you'll be able to see the idea of covenant and baptism in the Lord's Supper. 
as we proceed along today. So you might keep your finger in your Bible to reference that, look back at that. Covenant comes to us from a Latin word, and also before that, diakathē, a Greek word. But it comes to us with the meaning of agreement, or to come together in agreement. That we might actually be of the same mind on something. And as we come together each week, we come together around a common covenant, and that is the new covenant in Christ's blood. A covenant is a formal agreement between two or more persons to do some things that are specified. In the Bible, God talks about covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. Jeremiah 31 forecasts a new covenant that would come that would change the hearts of God's people. And that, of course, came manifest in the new covenant in Christ's blood. In our devotional last week, the editors of Table Talk magazine wrote of the new covenant or the New Testament in this way. Through this new covenant, those who are called received the promised eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9.15 says. This inheritance is everlasting, resurrected, and glorious life in the presence of God in the new heaven and new earth, which is, has its fullest realization of the promises first made to Abraham millennia ago. Many religious teachers have proclaimed many different ways of being restored to God, but the only way to enjoy eternal blessing is through the death of the Son of God who offered himself through the Spirit to the Father for our forgiveness. So interacting with the book of Hebrews, describing the new covenant in Christ's blood. Many teachers proclaim many different ways to be restored to God, but we know that it's only through the death of the Son of God, it's only through the death of Christ that we experience eternal life. God's covenant with us that he has made with us for salvation is unilateral and binding. What he has done for us as promised to Abraham and as now made manifest through the ministry of Christ, his perfect and final ministry for us. He's made salvation for us, and what he has done for us is made a way where there was no way. He has made an agreement where there could be no agreement. He's made fellowship where there could be no fellowship. So covenant makes its way into our language really from God. In the English context, in law, early forms of, of action and lawsuits involve sealed contracts. So contract might be a way to ease into the conversation about covenant. In church, a solemn agreement between members of a church to act together in harmony with the precepts of the gospel is called a church covenant. Our church covenant begins this way. Let me just read it to you. Having been empowered by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one local body of Christ. And the covenant goes on to explain what we're covenanting to do. And while I won't read it all, I'll just share a sentence or two down the list. It says that we in covenant will work together for the continuance of faithful ministry in this church as we sustain the church's worship, the ordinances, which we're talking about today, baptism and Lord's Supper, discipline and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to support the ministry of the church, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We moreover agree 
that when we leave this church, differently, when we move away, we will as soon as possible unite with another church where we can carry out the spirit of this church covenant and the principles of God's word. So covenant has been given to us as a word and concept from God himself. It's made its way into our practices of law, and it's made its way rightly into our understanding of our life together as a church. We don't amorphously exist. We exist in covenant with one another before God who has initiated covenant with us. So men and dads, your covenant making and covenant keeping is one of the most important aspects of faithful fatherhood. But not just dads. Each one of us, as one in Christ, as united in Christ, must lower the dividing wall of hostility as we make and keep covenant. This is what it means to be spiritual. You might think of the Emancipation Proclamation as a kind of covenant with then slaves to ensure their freedom in 1863. This past Friday, June 19th, as it's called Juneteenth, as the recites the, the celebration of the news reaching the westernmost front of the Civil War in Texas, when they were finally delivered the news at, that the Civil War was over and that slaves were to be set free, even if it came two years later. This truly is an important marking in this nation's history because what came about then is we realized that officially that blacks and whites should not have a dividing wall of hostility around water fountains and classrooms and retail outlets. As a church, what we must know is that there can be no dividing wall of hostility between us because of our ethnicities. In Christ, we are one. There is no male or female, slave or free. Galatians 3 tells us, that our baptism brings us in common in Christ and in heaven, which we are practicing for and a colony of even now, in heaven we will see the redeemed of the Lord from every single tribe and tongue. That is the promise of the Word of God. We cannot resurrect walls amongst ethnicities after Christ has worked so desperately hard to break them down. If we are going to be able to move forward as the people of God, we must first get right the basic concept of covenant making and covenant keeping. In this mini-series, we will discuss covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the marriage covenant and how it relates to your membership covenant in the church. We'll discuss how we care for one another in covenant with regard to matters of conscience and counseling. We'll discuss how we're to worship in covenant with God. My aim is to help nail down practical application from Corinthians that hopefully will help you see more clearly how you should invest yourself in your home primarily, which is your first ministry, and also in the life of the church and in ministry and mission. So as I've already said, having now explained covenant, my second and third points for the sermon will be about covenant-keeping through the sign of baptism, as well as the Lord's Supper. So now let us talk specifically about baptism. Bobby Jameson wrote in a helpful little book, Church Basics, Understanding Baptism, he wrote the following. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water. 
and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. Bami Jamison wrote that definition of baptism. Let's see how it plays out in our text for today. Let's read it afresh. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 18. Our text for this second point is about baptism. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also in the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize. What a statement. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and with the words of eloquent, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now to the second point about the ordinance of baptism as an oath-bearing sign of the new covenant. I want to make some observations. First in this text we see that baptism is done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't baptize in the name of anybody else. It isn't about any other ego. It's about Jesus, about lifting high the name of Jesus, as we sang earlier in this service. Also, baptism is to be a unifying agreement. It's a unifying event, a judging event, a not divided event in the life of the church among brothers and sisters in Christ. We have, we have judged this person's profession of faith to be credible, and so we're baptizing this person in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and the triune God, as we do that, we are actually demonstrating unity amongst brothers and sisters. So factions happening in the church around personalities is what this text is teaching against. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter. We're just calling Peter. I follow Peter. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. You may have had an elder in the church that you more identify with, but you should not divide over it. You should not compare church elders elsewhere or here or put more stock in an internet elder personality than your own local church because God intended preaching to be done in the context locally of relationships. And we are united not in the personality of the preacher, but in Christ. There will be many other differences of opinion that, that could disunite us, that could divide us in the church. But in Christ, if we stay by the Spirit with the Word, we will find a way to overcome our differences and to stay united because this is really all about the gospel. Christ crucified and resurrected for you. We preach this gospel, the power of the cross of Christ, not for personal or self-glory. Those of us being saved know the message of the cross is power. And for anybody listening here today that might not know the message of the cross as power, I would like to tell you that it is and it can be power for you. You can be saved too. Stop thinking of the gospel as folly and receive the gospel by faith today. Then you would, you would be eligible to be an official part of the body of Christ, not just universal, but local. 
you would be eligible to take on baptism and have membership conferred on you, not just in the church universal out there, but as it's expressed locally in a local church, like what we gather at here. If baptism is salvation, how could Paul thank God for not doing it? He would have been in a rush to baptize early and often if baptism equated with salvation. This text would be unreasonable. The household of Stephanus not only logically follow, follows the household of Stephanus that was baptized, not only logically followed the infants in Stephanus' households were also baptized, it would be illogical to say that the infants were baptized also necessarily, although some interpret it that way. Every example of baptism in the New Testament is of believers with adult-like understanding of salvation. So we might want to consider the appropriate age of baptism. And I don't know that the Bible ever says that there is an absolute appropriate age. I don't see that. Some would infer things based on Jesus at the temple at 12 years old. Some would infer things about basic intellect and cognitive development in the teenager's years, like 13 plus. But what we, I think we need to consider that the Bible does talk about is that in, the, in this text especially, is that we can see baptism as something that expresses a reality inside and not something that makes the reality inside true. We can see that baptism is something that Paul is not desperate to claim credit for having done. And we could, we could imagine putting some basic distance between a small child wanting to please their parents and a more mature child understanding the gospel and wanting to follow Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. We've been rightly accused of being functional infant baptizers when we baptize little bitty children that clearly have in mind pleasing their parents more than they have an understanding of the ways of the world and the need for repentance for eternal life. I was reading online and trying to find a, an expression of what I see as a, a biblical and systematic theology of baptism. And Castleview Church in Indianapolis wrote it this way. It says, For several generations now, believers, baptizers, or credo-baptists, those who maintain that baptism should be administered only after one's credible profession of faith, have wrestled with the appropriate age for baptism. Some maintain that baptism should be withheld until adulthood, while others baptize immediately when one professes faith, even during the preschool years. Most credo-baptists or believers-baptizers likely fall somewhere in between these two. Proponents of views on both ends of the spectrum tend to agree that this issue is a matter of wisdom, not of clear biblical instruction. Yet every church must make decision about how to approach the baptism of children. This paper that they wrote, these few paragraphs, represents how they, their elders, thought through this issue. Mature Christians make good arguments for immediate baptism and for withholding, and we see merit in both views. On the one hand, we believe that children can be saved, even at very young ages. Anyone who understands their need for a Savior turns from their sin and trusts in Christ is saved. Therefore, we urge parents to call their children to repent and put their faith in Jesus alone. 
Furthermore, we believe that every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and bears good spiritual fruit, including attitudes and actions that support one's profession of faith. Such children should not be guided to doubtful introspection, but rather encouraged to continue and grow in their faith. On the other hand, a child's natural dependence makes discerning fruit more difficult. We have observed that the majority of children whose parents raise them in the instruction of the Lord will profess belief in the gospel when they are very young. Indeed, it would be strange for a young child to independently reject loving instruction about the truth of the gospel. Sadly, we have also observed that many of these children later show by their lives and words that they were not possessing saving faith. For this reason, it is unwise to offer rash assurance to a child that his profession equals saving faith and guarantees a joyous eternity. Often, as a child grows older, it becomes easier to discern spiritual fruit. Gradually, a child shifts from dependent thinking to more independent thinking. Also, he has increasing opportunities to demonstrate true faith as he resists the pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. For these reasons, we often favor withholding baptism until an individual's profession grows clearer. This tends to happen during the teen years, though not without exception. For children who profess faith in Christ in junior high and high school, it is a good time to have serious conversations about baptism and church membership. That said, children at any age who desire baptism will be considered on a case-by-case basis. Parents who believe their child may be ready for baptism should contact an elder. The elders welcome and desire conversations about the spiritual state of a member's child. In many instances, the elders will recommend that a mentor, when possible the child's father, initiate a study with the child on the gospel and on conversion. I thought that was particularly apt for today. Involve the father in these conversations early and often. If after the study the mentor believes the child is ready for baptism, the elders will consider the request. If the elders believe the child is likely ready to pursue baptism and membership, then they would encourage the child to go through the normal baptism and membership process, which would include an elder interview and an important opportunity to begin demonstrating independent faith. And in our context, a membership matters course which they would be old enough to understand. Much more could be said on this issue, and particular circumstances can introduce a host of variables to consider. The practices described above may be adjusted as the elders see fit. We will seek to address each situation with biblical faithfulness and pastoral sensitivity. Our desire is to shepherd the congregation in a way that glorifies God, builds up the church, and benefits individual Christians. Please pray for wisdom to these ends. Now, that's what one church wrote about as they were wrestling with these issues. The reason I felt the need to share this today in addition to the fact that it's clearly talked about in our text, or Paul's not baptizing people. He's not seeing that as the reception point of the gospel, seeing it as evidence of the gospel. The reason I feel the need to talk about it is many parents in our church have struggled with, when is my little Johnny old enough to be baptized? And I don't think we have a a strident age for that. There's not an age of confirmation. And in this church where we have believing Presbyterian brothers and sisters out there that we love, this is a Baptist church. And Baptists baptize based on profession of belief from the person, not as household baptisms, baptizing a little baby. We don't do that here. So then you're immediately hit with the question, well, then when is old enough to be baptized? And I hope that that, and I'll try to post that on our church's site so that you can, our church's Facebook members page, so you can read over that, what I just read, and consider it. And my heart in preparing this part of this series was to help you. I hope that that comes across. I truly don't know. I won't know until I enter into glory if I have the absolute right view. 
on the ordinances. We're going to talk about the other ordinance of, of Lord's Supper in a moment. I, I don't know. But I also know something that you don't need from your elders is wishy-washiness. What you don't need is never getting any instruction on how then you should live and act. And so when we talk to you about baptism, I feel like we should try to say to you, here's some things to think about as you know your child best. But the congregation needs to be able to say, that young person has a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ and has turned from the world and is following him. One of the reasons that this is such an important topic is because a big problem in Baptist churches in particular over the last hundred years is children that, that get involved in church but then just run away from it when they get older. And there's even stories in college environments of de-baptisms and de-conversions. And it, it's grievous for us to imagine ever falsely assuring a young person and then them somehow not being receptive to the gospel at an older age. The baptism of little ones and of any believers, for that matter, should not be approached with sentimentality. Baptism should be approached sober-mindedly and approached with responsibility. As a church, as a corporate witness, we're vouching for this person's salvation and all the rights and privileges, including taking the Lord's Supper, as well as the responsibility to come under the church's discipline and to enter into the church's covenant with one another are afforded to that person. This is why when we have little children in the church and we haven't yet wrestled through the, the decision of whether or not my child is old enough to understand the gospel and be baptized, which is, as we've already shown, a very complex and important conversation to have, until that child is old enough to have received the gospel and follow the Lord in baptism, I would advise you against serving that child the Lord's Supper. Because what happens when you, when you fence the Lord's table and you don't give a child the Lord's Supper until they follow the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism is you're saying to that child, there is such a thing as being in the body of Christ and being out of the body of Christ. There's such a thing as having repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord for baptism and having not done that. And furthermore, we're not just saying it to children, but to adult friends that aren't believing in Christ for salvation. And you bring them to church, you should not urge them to take the Lord's Supper because the, the, taking the Lord's Supper is reserved for the believers in covenant with one another that have followed the Lord in baptism as a one-time ordinance and then, then do the ongoing ordinance of the Lord's Supper together. So you see, it's very, it's very important that we preach the gospel to unbelievers among us, not just in word, but also in deed. The taste of the Lord's Supper the wine and the bread is not for the unbeliever that hasn't walked with the Lord in that faith for baptism. Now, I also want to talk today, thirdly, not simply about the covenant concept for this series and not, not simply about baptism, but also thirdly about the Lord's Supper. Let us read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34 and continue this conversation together by looking at this text and talking as a congregation throughout the week and the weeks ahead. This is what the text says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, 
I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I receive from for I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes until he comes you proclaim the Lord's death Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. For if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the Apostle Paul, written in the early AD 50s, to a church that he had started in AD 51 in Corinth. And he writes about this oath-bearing sign of the covenant, the Lord's Supper, similarly and differently, but similarly for the sake of this sermon, to baptism in that we are saying something in how we do it. And we are saying something in the attitude as well as the actions that we bring to bear in facilitating these ordinances. So let's look at the Lord's Supper from these verses. Verse 17 tells us that it is possible to use these ordinances in a way, this ordinance in a way that makes us for the worse rather than for the better. It's actually possible to take communion or the Lord's Supper in a way that makes us for the poorer instead of for the richer. Bobby Jameson writes in his little book on church basics about the Lord's Supper, and he says, he says this, The Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and with each other and commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine, and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and making it set off from the world. So there's a way to go about this in which we are doing something personally, but also something corporately, where this ordinance of the Lord's Supper is the church's act of communing with Christ and with each other and remembering his death as we partake of the bread and the wine. We are proclaiming a message in the way, the attitudes and actions that we take to the Lord's Supper. Notice in verses 18 and in verses 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, notice that the Lord's Supper was served at a time when they came together as a church. What does it mean to be a church? Now, I think of membership, like 1 Corinthians 5 talks about in chapter 12 or Ephesians 2.20. I think that might be indicated here when they came together as a church. When we come together as a church, as an assembly, we should take the Lord's Supper in such a way that elevates the unity that we have in Christ and not emphasizes the divisions that we could seek to accentuate with one another. Factions, as 1 Corinthians once talked about, 
are things that will destroy and undermine the right taking of the Lord's Supper and the unity that we have in Christ. We need to make sure on the front end that members that have been welcomed into the membership of the church following their baptism, we need to make sure that that person had a credible profession of faith so they have been taught and understand what the Lord's Supper is about for them. This is not the first century where a Jewish person that was converting to Christianity had read the entire known book and knew exactly what they were embracing and what they were rejecting in, in following the Lord in baptism and taking the Lord's Supper. There's some instruction that we must do requisite to becoming a part of a church to help a person understand with sobriety what's going on here is not just a social club. It's not just something we do in order to fit in or, or boost our status in society or be functional. When we do this, we are actually saying, I am not going to participate in worldly affairs that are opposite of what it means to live for Christ. And in order that the world doesn't make its way into the church later, we must on the front end examine a person's profession of faith and say, yeah, that that is a legitimate profession of faith. That person lives in keeping with the Spirit, and not so much a probationary period, but a person actually explains the gospel in a way that's understandable. And so the likelihood that that person would not even understand the gospel as it pertains to their life in the church would be unlikely. Now, a person could always move from that gospel, but to, to not take time to make sure that that person understands the gospel on the front end would be an abdication of believer's baptism. It would be an abdication of a basic core belief of the believers that hold the covenant of the church. Now, the Lord's Supper should not be taken in a dividing way. It should be taken in a united way. And so one of the things that this text talks about, so important, is that we don't do class warfare in the church, the rich versus the poor. Uh, There's not even a hint of favoritism. What unites us again, as I said earlier, is not our economic status. What unites us is Christ. It's why you can have more in common with a person on the total other end of the educational or economic spectrum than you, than you have with somebody that's very much like you in a worldly sense, because you have in common with that person the church covenant. You have in common with that person Christ. You're seeking to live out covenant in a way that brings glory and honor to Christ. And because of that, you can have more in common with a fellow church member as you take the Lord's Supper together than you would with somebody that shares your personality profile or shares your desired work vocation. This is, this is revolutionary stuff in the eyes of the world. And the least that we can do is to reform in as best as we understand in keeping with the Scriptures in order to rightly proclaim the message, the unifying message of Christ to a world that's, that's disunited from it. We must proclaim it in a way by our attitudes and our actions that rightly preaches Christ to the world that watches us. Verse 22 tells us that our wrong actions, not just our wrong words, can communicate a disregard for the church of God. We should not act in a way that despises the one that we love. We should take care to communicate in a way that glorifies the one that we love, Jesus Christ. And so, Dad, take your responsibility to speak specifically to you on a day like today to, to listen to these commitments and to the, the, the way in which these ordinances are to be meted out in the church and take your responsibility to lead children to appropriate gospel reception and faithful membership in the church to pray for that. Take your responsibility seriously 
especially dads in the home for family worship. Take the time to open up God's Word and to read it to your children and to explain the Bible to your children. If you don't understand something about it, seek counsel from the leaders of the church to help you understand it. Take take seriously your responsibility to read the Bible and to pray with your children. It's so important that we do that and that we, we teach them about the gospel so that when the time comes for them to receive the gospel, there's something there that's readied them mentally for. The Lord's readied them through your teaching in your home. And so that when it comes time for the church to say, that one has made a contrarian choice from the world and wants to walk with Jesus, the church can gleefully with you, come in partnership with you, and ratify a person's profession of faith at baptism and have membership conferred on that person and joyfully take the Lord's Supper with that person in an adult-like manner all the days of their life until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. The Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, that we have a corporate witness when we take the Lord's Supper, a together witness that we evangelize when we have the courage to take the Lord's Supper together in a way that is honoring to Christ as an oath-bearing sign of the new covenant. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're preaching the gospel in taking the Lord's Supper as a group exercise. And I don't think texts like 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and following are meant to pound consciences that are tender amongst the members of the church. I, I think we have to not let texts like this do that. We have to talk about self-examination for the Lord's Supper as a kind, of, a kind of minimum litmus test to see that you be in the gospel. If we were to not going to say you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because as a member you sinned once in the last week or month, I think we would be overbinding consciences. The Lord's Supper is not to be taken by perfect people, of which we would all be unable to do so. The Lord's Supper is to be taken by believing people that have followed Lord Jesus Christ in baptism and are seeking to live in the covenant life of the church. That doesn't mean perfection. So tender consciences, when you read verses like 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27 plus all the way down through 34, let's be careful that self-examination does not lead to self-deprecation. Let's be careful that self-examination does not lead us to a kind of turned-inness on ourselves that never allows us to take the Lord's Supper because we don't look up to Christ and look at what He's done for us. It's not I follow Peter, Paul, or Apollos. It's not I follow Matt or Mark or Kurt. It's not, it's not, I follow, it's not even that I follow, you put your name there. I don't follow Sean or, or Jonas or I don't, I don't follow Laura. It's, it's not about following you when you take these ordinances. It's about following Jesus. So your perfection is not on trial. Your sincerity is, you must be sincere when you come to follow Christ. You must be humble. But your perfection, it's his perfection that's the reason why we even are pursuing this covenant together and taking these ordinances. So concerning the idea of evangelism, I hope that texts like this help you to see that we have a corporate witness to the world. It's not always me sharing the gospel, it's us sharing the gospel. And the way we take the Lord's Supper is part of our witness. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to continue to say this out, but my humble belief is a big part of what 
we as a local church are supposed to hold dear and to do rightly. And Jesus, after all, gave us these ordinances. Do you remember? After he gave us a command to be discipling and disciplining one another in Matthew 18, we see in the great passion narrative of Christ in Matthew 26, we see the Last Supper, which is the front runner of the recapitulation of the Passover, and is the front, it's, a front, it's the front runner, rather, to after being a recapitulation of the Passover, it's a front runner to what we know as the Lord's Supper, not just with the apostles in the original room, but now with the church, like 1 Corinthians 11 says. And so this, this is something that Jesus has given us. These ordinances are something he's given us. And as we humbly study this out, we need to relent to the Lord Jesus' authority as best as we understand and not just sentimentalize baptism and the Lord's Supper, but pursue it as part of his new covenant in his blood for us, helping us to live out our covenant together in faithfulness to him. And so how might you apply this to yourselves today? Um, if you need to be baptized as a believer, make that known to an elder in the church and refrain from the Lord's Supper until such time as you are. If you have been baptized as a believer, consistently be present as we take the Lord's Supper at this church here together. And we're looking forward to restarting that right about back to school time, taking it together in the church. Be here for it. Don't miss out on coming to church. Be here for the Lord's Supper. When baptisms are scheduled here, invite your unbelieving friends. They need to hear the message and see the message that accompanies a rightly administered baptism. When the Lord's Supper is scheduled, let unbelieving friends see the gospel by being excluded, not by tasting the Lord's Supper, but by being excluded from it and saying, what must I do to be a part of that? And tell them the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ and lift up Christ. He promises when you lift his name up that he will draw people unto himself. If you're a young child, ask your parents many questions about Jesus and the gospel. Ask them, what did the Lord Jesus do for me? What is the gospel? How do I receive it? If you're a teenager considering the gospel for your life, talk with your parents about the gospel and the ordinances. And membership matters is an option for the more spiritually aware, or as not the more spiritually aware, as you're becoming more spiritually aware, taking the membership matters course is an option for you, teenager. We hope that you will take it. And I hope that you're seeing, as parents, your big responsibility to be teaching the things of God in the home. It's very important. It's very important. Dad, you have a big responsibility. And I'm so thankful. I want to encourage you. I'm so thankful for the number of dads in this church that are striving to read the Bible and pray with their families. I, I mean, it means so much. I, not perfectly, but stridently. You're striving for it. That is so important. Just open it and, and, and read from it and, and, and pray with your family and watch the Lord through his means do his work. If you're a, a seasoned old pro in all this stuff, the baptism of the Lord. So you've been baptized, been taking the Lord's Supper for years. I want to ask you this morning, please remember that we never outgrow the basics. We never outgrow the basics. Baseball players still need the basics in spring training. It helps them to prevent injury and train. We need the basics of the ordinances, the one-time ordinance of baptism, and the ongoing oath-bearing sign of the Lord's Supper. Never will we outgrow it. We'll only grow in our appreciation of it and what he has done for us. That's why we have in our church's constitution Statement number 23, we affirm baptism in the Lord's Supper. We affirm that baptism in the Lord's Supper are ordinances instituted by Christ to be observed by Christians only. Baptism was instituted for believers with the preferred mode of immersion. 
The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus, underscored by the apostles, and perpetuated by the churches. We deny that baptism is an unimportant matter or that the Lord's Supper is to be received tritely. That's in our church's constitution. May the Lord help us as we seek to keep faith with him, with one another, and may we remember that these means of grace are just that, they're means. He's the provider of grace, and he's the one that holds us fast in our faith until the day of the Lord. One day very, very soon, very, very soon, we will be present for the marriage feast of the Lamb. For not a last supper, and not simply the Lord's Supper, but for the Lord's Supper with our Lord. Do you look forward to that? What a day that'll be, won't it? When we take a meal with Jesus and all these things that, that could have divided us and that we just weren't, we couldn't be exactly on the same page. Jesus will make all things clear. It will be completely clear. And he will be adorned and worshiped. And all the redeemed all together before the Lord. Don't miss out. And what a day that will be. Let's pray. God, I hope today, I hope talking about the ordinances and the new covenant, I hope humility has come across. And I hope that instruction has come across too. Please guide our church and guide me in these things. And please help the parents of children in this church that are trying to lead faithfully in the home. And please help the people in our church that have already been there to continue to grow and to encourage parents of young children. And please help those that are considering you. I especially want to ask that you'd help the teenagers and the young adults to come to know you because I know that there's going to come a day they're going to stand before you and they're going to go to a sinner's hell if they don't repent of their sin and trust you. And I know that despite the best efforts of the community of faith in my own hometown, that if you hadn't just pursued me like the hound of heaven that you are, I wouldn't be saved today. I know the pivotal time that is 19, 20, 18, 17, 16, 15. I know the pivotal time that it is for young people. And I just ask you to do supernatural work that we, we, could, we can't do ourselves because I don't want our babies to grow up and to know things but not to know you. So I just ask you to help us with this, please. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.